Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hi, I'm John McEnroe. I'm Bjorn Borg. This is Martina Navratilova. I'm Mats Wilander. I'm Stan Wawrinka. I'm Leighton Hewitt. I'm Andy Murray. This is Kay on behalf of Charlie the Ferret, and you're listening to The Tennis Podcast. Well, hello and welcome to the Tennis Podcast, brought to you in association with The Telegraph and with Eurosport and, of course, with Charlie the Ferret, whose mum Kay just heard from in our intro. So thanks very much, Kay, for your support. And Charlie, of course, we are going to be speaking a lot about Roger Federer this week. Why? Because he is the oldest world number one in the history of singles in tennis. And that happened this week. So we've got to reflect on it, haven't we? No Catherine Whitaker to talk to about it because she's in Korea still in Pyeongchang at the Winter Olympics. But we'll be back with our listener special that we recorded during the Australian Open. That'll take place next week now. We've got a very special guest joining us this week. It is Chris Clary from the New York Times, one of our favourite guests. He's covered the sport for 28 years since 1990. He's covered 14 Olympic Games, four World Cups, and done just about everything you can do in sports journalism. So it's it's a treat to have him with us because he's covered Roger Federer every single step of the way. Before we talk Roger Federer... We will have other talking points as well to cover with Chris. Serena Williams' return, uh, Caroline Wozniacki, various other things as well. Let's just uh, round up what's happened so far over the last seven days because Petra Kvitova has won her second successive title in Doha. Uh, a fantastic achievement, that. Two titles in a row now, St. Petersburg and Doha. Federer, of course, won his title in Rotterdam. He beat... Uh, Grigor Dimitrov in the final, and it was a win over Robin Haase that finally got him to, to world number one on Friday. Dominic Team beat Aliash Bedene in Buenos Aires to win the title there. A good title win at the New York Open, the new event in the Big Apple by Kevin Anderson. He beat Sam Querrey in the final. So those are the results, the main ones that have happened over the last seven days. Also, a... a, a Relatively speaking to those, a minor result to tell you about, which is where I was in Shrewsbury in the UK at a, at a lovely event that was put on there. I went to, to this event with my family and uh, they had a futures tournament there. And, and it was it was competed between two players and ranked in the 400s in the world uh, in the final uh, between Fabian Raboul and Max Neuchrist. And yet they put on a fantastic show. It just shows how deep tennis is in terms of players trying to make it in the world. And these two just fought it out, 7-6 in the third. Rabul eventually won it. And, uh, you know, it was a really interesting insight. And they put on a great event over there in Shrewsbury. 
Now, let's get on to talk about Roger Federer, because, as I said, Chris Clary, our guest from the New York Times, is here on the Tennis Podcast. And the first thing I wanted to do is ask him what he was making of it all, the fact that Roger Federer, at the age of 36, was world number one again. You know, I feel like Roger is this amazingly agile, you know, well-preserved squirrel who keeps running around on the ground, and they're just nuts lying everywhere, and there's no competition for them to be picked up from the usual squirrels, and he's just grabbing them right and left. <laughs> it's, just, it's just an amazing scenario. I mean, he totally deserves it, What's no, not to say that at all, but it's just a confluence of circumstances, as I wrote the other day, which is just extraordinary. And I honestly, uh, what really strikes me here is I talked to Roger quite a bit before he came back you know, from his knee problems, you know, version number two and all the rest, and I just felt like number one was never on his radar. Not at all. I mean, I know he definitely wanted to win another slam and have another moment. That was his goal. Uh, so what? He's had that three times, and now number one comes along. It's just a total bonus. And he was absolutely right to seize the moment, seize the opportunity. And you know, once he did, it just seems like at the moment, I mean, the karma is just paying him back in a positive way, big time. And and who's to say he doesn't deserve it? He's because he's kept you know plugging away all these years, you know, selling the game of tennis worldwide in so many different places, and uh, I think at this point you have to say he's the most popular tennis champion in history in many regards. I mean, Borg might have gotten there if he'd stuck around, but, you know, Roger has stuck around, and so it's just uh, it's a great reward for his great planning, great talent, and great persistence. That's something Catherine and I were speaking about at just after the the Australian Open final because of the the slightly weird atmosphere where you'd got this this guy this underdog coming back at him but with without hardly any support and you've got this overwhelming favorite getting all the all the support it, I'm tr- there are not too many I can't think of too many in tennis that that's been the case for I I I asked my sort of followers on Twitter what for other examples in the sporting world. I mean, people came up with some some good ones, I felt, like Usain Bolt and people like that, the all-time greats, dominant figures who who actually take the lion's share of the of the popularity. But within tennis, I, I can't think of anybody else. No, I mean, he really hasn't been a, a not the crowd unfavorite since he played Murray, probably at Wimbledon um, when he beat Murray and then at the, at the Olympics. I think that's probably the last time he was really, I would say, in a, in a major match, uh, very much not the crowd favorite. It's just, it's just been extraordinary. And it's, again, uh, something he's earned through the years because he definitely didn't have that, that quality in the, the dominant phase of his career the first time around back in the mid-2000s. It's, it's a very much a, a different scenario now. And, uh, and it just shows you that if you have staying power – and you have a pleasing style, and you treat people right along the way, including the press, which I think is an important part of this. Um, he really, uh, I think he's a lot, a lot to be learned from his from his journey here. I'm not sure it can be replicated. <laughs> I really don't think we'll see another number one at age 36 again on the ATP tour. I honestly believe we won't see that again. Um, but um, the other things that he's passed along, I think, are, are very instructive. And the great thing is there's a whole new wave of, t- of tennis players coming up watching him do this. And going, hmm, maybe that's a template to be followed. Well, that that, that wouldn't be a bad template to follow. Um, you, you mentioned uh, the oldest uh, and and that you can't see this being replicated. The man he's taken over from is, is Andre Agassi. I, I read some 
some really interesting quotes in your piece in the New York Times from Agassi. And I think that I'm right in saying they were back from when they faced each other at the US Open, weren't they? That's correct, yeah, after that final, yeah, back in, was it 07, I guess it was? Right, yeah. Yeah, I think, actually, I think it was, wasn't it even as early as 05, I think Maybe it might have been. And, 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 the, and what was the yeah. gist of what Agassi was getting at? Because, I mean, I remember, I was recounting when we when he won Wimbledon uh, Federal the most recent time last year, I was recounting how Agassi was the second player that I ever saw Federer play against in Basel in 1998. And I remember, and I was recounting what Agassi's reaction was to Federer then, which is that, you know, the basics of the game are really exciting, but but it was still a long a long way to being refined. What what was his view in '05 after that final? Well, I, I think you know he Andre really took to Roger, um, and he was at a stage in his career when he was had so much perspective. And I think if Roger had come along earlier in Andre's career, he wouldn't have been as eloquent or as magnanimous about the situation, but he really was at that stage. And I, I think he was just a big enough person at that stage of his career to sort of admit what was obvious to him on the court and was simply that no matter what Andre tried to do, Roger had an answer. And he had never felt sort of that disarmed on a tennis court. And the quote that really stuck with me was, I think he said, quote, he's the only guy I've ever played against where you hold serve to go up one love and you're thinking, all right, good. <laughs> <laughs> And the other thing, I, 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 as if it's a relief. Yeah, and he, wasn't, he wasn't making fun of it. And yeah. The other thing was obviously, you know, Pete Pete Sampras was Andre's great measuring stick, and and frankly, Andre never quite measured up to Pete, except in rare circumstances in the majors. Um, Pete was the dominant player, um, so I think for him to have a direct way to compare the the two champions who had similar styles in a lot of ways. But he said, you know, Pete was great, no question about it, which of course was true. Then Andre said. But there was a place to get to with Pete. You knew what you had to do. And if you do it, it could be on your terms, a match. And there's no such place like that with Roger. And this is what, as you said, 13 years ago, 05 U.S. Open final. And uh, I remember Andre's mood. I don't remember everything he said exactly uh, in that press conference, but I remember the way he was. And he was not at all disappointed, really, in a way. It was just he had faced a higher force and was happy to uh, admit it. And that, that's a rare thing for champions at that level to have that kind of perspective. I think in more recent years, Nadal and, and Djokovic have found somewhere that you can go against Federer, haven't they? Particularly Nadal with that, that forehand cross court into the backhand side, bouncing up high and won all those matches. The reinvention of Roger Federer over the last year or so, and partially I feel provided by Stefan Edberg's time with him as well, that they got him to go into the net more, but... What Ivan Lubicic has has helped him to achieve, and Severin Luthier, I think, is it's almost also important to, to mention him here. That to me is is almost one of the greatest achievements of the lot for Federer because he had his dominant years, but to to do it again after you've been quite as fragile as he was against those top players for a while. I mean, you tell me back in 2013 when he lost to Tommy Robredo at the U.S. Open, did you f- think he was? finished as a, as a slam winning force back then you know i don't remember what i wrote exactly thank goodness um because <laughs> i'm sure there's probably times when he, i did write him off but i i know paul anacone very well and i covered paul as the coach of, of pete sampras when pete won his last slam and i've always kind of kept in mind what he said it was just that you know, these great great champions they always have one more in them somewhere someplace 
until they just hit a biological moment where it's just not possible, of course, anymore. But I mean, within that range of of, uh, of um, reasonable success, there's always a moment these guys have got something on their racket they can put it together. So I always thought that Roger, particularly on grass or a faster hard court, sure, could put together seven matches again, everything going his way, and maybe pull it off. But this sort of sustained excellence, and again, as you say, with a stylistic evolution of some sort and improvement um, at a stage where you're kind of usually just pretty happy to stay with the status quo, that is extraordinary. And I didn't expect that. I don't think anybody did. And you know what? I don't think Roger did either. Maybe Ivan Lubacic did, but he's not talking to us. He's the no. best the best talker in tennis who doesn't talk anymore. It's amazing. So <laughs> Ivan, Ivan knows all. He may have all the secrets for it. It's funny you should say that, uh, Chris. Uh, you you were you were, if you don't mind me saying so, you were second on my list of people to ask for the for this week's show because I actually asked Ivan Lubacic to come on, and he very politely declined. <laughs> He's been declining everybody, even those who've covered him, you know, from the beginning. It's amazing. I think yeah. that's his, that's it's working for him. Why should he change this winning game, right? No, I, I agree. I'm honored to be your second choice. Well, you, I'll tell you, Ivan, you you would have been rubbish. This is way better. Anyway, um, <laughs> uh, j- just a couple more on Federer, Chris, because uh, you mentioned you've spent quite a lot of time with him. I I'm, I know you spent some time with him. I think when he did he d- he did a kind of exhibition tour, didn't he, in South America, and then he he obviously had the Laver Cup. Um, and and you were around him there quite a bit before that. What 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 sort of character have you found him to be? Well, I think what's interesting with Roger is is that um, he's very empathetic, and I think if I had to pick one word just to define him, it probably would be that off the court, and um, that he's able to meet people from all walks of tennis life and all walks of life in general, and he and he finds a way to relate to them because I think he really feels what they're going through. And frankly, that's not really the hallmark of many tennis champions or many sports champions at all. Usually they're so much in their bubble, what works for them, what makes them you know, click and operate on all cylinders. And Roger has that rare quality, and I'm, I'm, I get tired of giving him compliments. I know all of us sometimes do, um, but it's true. He really has a way of, if it's the ball kid, if it's the tournament director, if it's the, the player he just trounced one and one, uh, maybe even the guy who just beat him, I, I don't know. But it's, it's, he really has this ability to feel what others are feeling. And that comes through in his engagement with them. And then he also applies to journalists to some degree too. I think he, he doesn't just, you know, give you a, a monologue. It's, it's a conversation generally. And obviously he wasn't like that when he was young as much, but now he's, I think, come to that place. And part of that is because he's gotten so much positive feedback for being an ambassador for the sport. And he's managed to not have too many down moments where he's having to answer the retirement question in a negative way for too long, which I'm sure put Leighton Hewitt in a bad mood. You know, for many years, and Leighton wasn't always in a good mood to begin with. So, but but Roger, I think, is somebody who definitely, yeah, takes that role now more than ever of ambassador of tennis quite seriously. And and frankly, it's totally legitimate. I mean, he is. You know, it's and that holds him to a higher standard of behavior. And I think he holds himself to a higher standard of behavior because of that. I, I often try to work out in my head whether Roger Federer has an exit strategy in mind, whether he knows in his mind how this is all going to end in an ideal world. Obviously, if he gets injured, that's out of his hands. But do you, do you think that at this stage he he knows? Well, it, it does kind of run counter to his personality to think that he wouldn't have a plan because this is a guy who's planned everything out. He's thinking two years ahead on his schedule. Um, that's that's the Swiss part of him, I think, very much so, is that, that ability to compartmentalize and, and plan ahead. So I'd be surprised if he hasn't thought it through in some fashion. But I think it's just, I think it's, everything's been pushed back. 
by all that's happened in the last year and a half. I mean, certainly he didn't expect this kind of consistent success. Who could have known that Djokovic and Murray would fall away as they've fallen away also? I mean, let's let's be frank about it. That's been a that's been a big factor in all this. He hasn't played anybody from the big five uh, in the last two slams that he's won, Wimbledon last year or the Australian Open. And on this run to number one in Rotterdam, he didn't face any of them again. Vavrinka, not at his best, could have been in his path, and he lost in the opening round. So that's that's a crazy set of circumstances based on this era's history of tennis. Those guys are always blocking each other one way or the other, and they haven't been blocking Roger. So I think all that situation has, has pushed it back. But I'm sure in his mind's eye, knowing how much he plans, he has a thought about the way he sees it ending. And clearly, if he has another major injury, I, I believe him when he says this. I think, I think it's over then. I don't think he's going to go through that again. No, that, that that would be tough. Let's hope that doesn't happen. I mean, it it has been hard actually witnessing the struggles, particularly hasn't it, of of Murray and and, and again Djokovic in Australia. I mean, it's you know when these guys, I think we 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 were shocked to see them injury injured, but then they're all in the thirties now. Yeah, I mean, looking at Novak, in particular his style of play, how athletic he is, the extreme positions he puts himself in, um, how hard he has to work to win certain points. Um, that applies to Murray as well. I don't think Murray's in quite the same extreme positions as consistently as Novak. But Novak, with his flexibility and his stretching regimen and everything else, I think he kind of led us all to believe that he was a different uh, different model. And um, as it's turned out, he really isn't. I mean, it's taken a toll on him, obviously, the way he's, he's playing the game. And again, this is an elbow issue, not a, not a leg issue. So we'll see how things play out. But, it, you know, it, it is more a reversion to the norm. I mean, extreme uh, style of play in tennis, the grind of the game, the length of the rallies takes a toll and, and they're, they're proof of it. It's, it's sad because they, they're both such extreme uh, talents. It'd be wonderful to see all these guys going into their early thirties at, you know, at full speed and at great health. But right now it's not happening. I mentioned, Chris, that you have covered 14 Olympics, four World Cups as well to add to that in your role as global sports columnist uh, for the New York Times. You've been covering slams since 1990. Where is it f- possible for you to, to consider where Federer stands amongst the pantheon of all-time great sports people that you've covered? Well, I think you have to put it in perspective in terms of where tennis fits, Um and tennis is a popular sport, number two or number three in many countries, but rarely number one. So inevitably, I think the people who are playing the number one sport, which would be soccer in some places, basketball, um, other places, rugby, I think that's something you have to bring them into the, into the conversation. So, you know, soccer players who endure, I caught the end of Pelé in my career and obviously seeing people like Messi and Ronaldo going at it now. I mean, that's a global sport. There are millions upon millions of kids trying to get that level, and they are the ones who are reaching that level and achieving at that, at that spot. So I, I think in my pantheon of who goes where, I have to put those great global soccer stars probably at the top. But I think Roger comes in very close after that. And I, in terms of the people that I've seen, you know, the mix of longevity, excellence, pleasure to watch, ability to keep going. And then you know, if you're talking about just the whole spectrum of sport, you, gotta, you also got to include – in my time, you know, Serena Williams as well and Steffi Graf as you know, women's players who have won more slams, both of them, than Roger has. Um, so that to look at it you know, in, a, in a wide lens, you got to include them. But as far as men's sports stars, yeah, um, absolutely extraordinary. And, and I've been fortunate to see a lot. I mean, a guy like 
a guy like Bolt as well. That's but uh, again compared to Roger, a pretty short uh, span of dominance. I guess the only guy you could think about would be Phelps, from an Olympic perspective, just because he has that en- enduring hunger, enduring excellence, um, born to be a swimmer because of the way his body's built, and the way he's structured, was a prodigy, and has managed to continue to win all all through different phases of his life and changes. So. I think that's probably the closest guy that I've seen in an Olympic lens who would fit in with Roger in my time. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Hello Tennis Podcast listeners, David here. Now you might know that I love a bit of cooking, and I think I'm quite good at it. But if I'm honest, even I get fed up trying to work out what to do every night. That's where Home Chef comes in. Being able to put together a delicious meal without the long prep and the cook times, well that's pretty cool. Home Chef provides fresh ingredients and chef-designed recipes conveniently delivered to your doorstep to simplify your cooking experience. They have over 30 options a week and serve a variety of dietary needs so you don't have to worry about what to make ahead of time. Not only is it convenient, but it's economical too. Home Chef customers save an average of $86 per month on groceries. Now, for a limited time, Home Chef is offering Tennis Podcast listeners 18 free meals plus free dessert for life and, of course, free shipping on your very first box. Go to homechef.com slash tennis. That's homechef.com slash tennis for 18 free meals and free dessert for life. You heard it right. Talking of all-time great, she mentioned Serena Williams. Am I right in thinking you were there at the Fed Cup when she made her comeback? I was there. I was indeed. I w- the comeback was, was a bit diluted by the fact that the match wasn't so meaningful, but I was there, yes. What were your impressions of, of what you saw and what you heard and what you heard people saying? Well, I, I watched her practice a couple times from a very close range, and I watched her match in doubles, which she and Venus lost to a first-time doubles pair from the Netherlands, um, which was quite surprising. But I, I think she's got a ways to go, David. She's still uh, not in top form. She's got some weight to lose. Um, she's, uh, not moving laterally as well as, as she was when she, you know, before she took her maternity leave, all that's quite normal and to be expected. Um, but I think I can categorically state that she seems hungry still. She looked like she was very eager to practice and she was, when the ball was in her range, within her reach, she was still crushing it. Serve is, wasn't clicking at top level yet, but I, I think we need to wait. This is not going to be a, you know, a Federer, tight comeback 
six months away, storm to a title right away, I don't think. I'd be surprised. But I think eh, we'll have a better idea by Wimbledon where she stands. That's a great surface for her if she can get her serve back going again, get back in better fitness. But it's, uh, it's a big challenge, one of the very biggest of her career, and goodness knows she's had a few. She sure has. Talking to people who've had a challenge, Caroline Wozniacki finally winning a slam. Great story, wasn't it? And and I don't know, I, I feel as though the WTA circuit now, is it's getting backed up as well. Those results from Australia, Petra Kvitova has now won two titles in a row. Wozniacki's come out and, and, and backed it up a little bit. Kerber's coming good again. It, it needs that, doesn't it? It needs those re- repeat matches and rivalries in order to, to build some momentum. That is precisely it. It has been such a long time since that's happened. Every time we've seen it start to be created, it's been snuffed out. And we saw Azarenka going out, going with Serena with some great matches three years ago or so, some real classics, a couple of U.S. Open finals. That looked like it was going to be the rivalry. Didn't happen. Azarenka fell away. Serena's had her maternity leave. Same thing we thought with uh, you know Kerber and Serena when they played those two great finals two years ago. Again, not. Um, Sharapova and Serena's never been a match since that first Wimbledon final that Maria won. So it, it, it's been an amazing run of, I would say, misfortune is the right word, because there's been a lot of opportunities for these players to be in position to play each other at the right time, but it just hasn't happened consistently. And the men have had rivalry after rivalry at the top, and the women just haven't had that. So, yeah, they need consistency. They need these established figures to go at each other. And we need, uh, you know, more slams like we saw in Australia with familiar figures playing great matches. It was a terrific women's tournament in Australia. It was. And actually, Wozniacki created a bit of news again last week because I think she must be the first player, maybe since um, Larcher, was it Larcher Brito? And, and, and also going way back to when Selesh played against uh, Navratilova and Tausia at Wimbledon in 92. One of the first players I've seen actually complain about an opponent's grunting. Wozniacki did that against Monica Nicolescu last week and was saying that she's she's delaying her grunt before she hits it and and, and she actually took that to the umpire. I, I mean that that's so rare, isn't it, these days? Because it, it you know it's an accepted part of the game in so many ways. And yet I remember a few years ago there was some talk, particularly on the WTA side from the authorities, that they were going to try to do or put in some place some measures to try to reduce the noise that players made. Um, I mean, do you think that anything will ever happen in that regard? Well, it's gone back burner, hasn't it, because of Maria's sharp of a suspension and, and Azarenka being off the, off the circuit you know, in a meaningful way for most of the last couple of years. And obviously, uh, Azarenka and Sharapova are the two most prominent players who on the WTA Tour who grunt at that level. Um, so it's kind of gone back burner. Uh, and I definitely the issue has come up much less with the powers that be in the WTA. I do know that Stacey Allister, when she was in charge of the tour, there was an attempt made at the junior level with the ITF uh, junior level to talk to the players, both the boys and the girls, and discuss this topic and try to ones who were on the extreme end of it. Um, we're going to be informed that it wasn't the way in the future. It was going to be enforced down the road. But then you have Sabalenka who comes along. <laughs> So obviously she wasn't listening, but they missed the, they, they missed that memo. So I mean it's it it does it is going to rear its head. I, I I am sensitive to the fact that you know it could be perceived as a sexist argument in the sense that there are plenty of men who uh, crank up the volume. Um, obviously you hear more fan complaints about the WTA, but I think if they don't address it, and Sabalenka ends up a consistent slam competitor at the top, you're going to hear more about it again, and it's going to be back on there again. So they, I think in terms of 
my issue's always been if it's gamesmanship, if it's selective, or if it's interfering with the other player's stroke, it needs to be addressed. And there have been many times, I think, when it hasn't been addressed. So hopefully this uh, next generation, if it does rise up again, that the, the tour will be forced to act and on both sides, ATP and WTA. Chris, it's been a joy. Thank you so much for joining us here on the Tennis Podcast. It really is a, a pleasure to have you on the show. And uh, I hope you have uh, a very nice vacation and, uh, and, and we, we see you again very soon. Thank you, David. Wish me good luck on the hill. I need it. And I, I wish you good luck when you talk to Ivan Lubacic next week. It should be good. I look forward to hearing that. <laughs> Thanks a lot. See you soon. All right, David. All the best. So there's Chris Clary, one of our very favorite guests here on the Tennis Podcast. I think he's joined us three or four times over the course of the, the six years that we've been doing this show. 400 episodes we've done in total almost now. And I can't think of too many people I prefer speaking to than Chris Clary. I never fail to learn something, quite honestly. And if you get a chance to read his stuff in the New York Times, it's so worth it. There's always a new angle and a a take on it that that I certainly haven't thought of before. So that brings to a close another edition of the Tennis Podcast. As I said at the outset, we will be back next week with our listener special, uh, edited, guest edited by Grace Onions. Really looking forward to bringing that one to you. It's another really interesting chat. Gave Catherine and I a chance to really get stuck into the questions that you have been firing our direction on Twitter, at Tennis Podcast, on Instagram and on Facebook. We're on all of those. I don't really know how too many of them work, but uh, you know, people show me how it works. Student Matt gets involved and points out uh, what people are asking, and you know, I go and answer the questions. Um, we have been the Tennis Podcast, brought to you in association with the Telegraph and with Eurosport, with La Manga, the great holiday destination in Spain, which does such magnificent tennis and golf holidays, by Triple S, our executive producer, by Melanie Bowes, our predictions champion, by TennisBalls.com, and, of course, by Charlie the Ferret. We'll be back next week. Flexibility is great. That's why there's yoga. Flexibility for your insurance coverage is great, too. That's why there's United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, United Healthcare Insurance Plans offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. One of these plans may be right for you if you're, say, between jobs, coming off your parents' plan, turning a side hustle into a full hustle, or even missed open enrollment. Want more flexibility? Find out more about United Healthcare Insurance Plans at UH1.com. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade.